With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by The China Project, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquez. I'm a professor at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And today, we are joined by Guo Li Chen, who is a professor of strategy at INSEAD, and Jiang Gong Li, who is founder and CEO of Momentum Works. We discuss Chinese tech companies and their global expansion, which is the subject of their recently co-authored book titled Seeing the Unseen Behind Chinese Tech Giants Global Venturing. The phrase seeing the unseen intrigued me. And so we start our conversation with Guo Li explaining what unseen means in the context of their book. We also then discuss the protective nature of the Chinese tech ecosystem, which Jiang Gang pointed out might result in more challenges for Chinese tech companies going global to compete. Both Guoli and Jiangang stress the adaption of people, organizations, product, and leadership, or pop leadership, as they discuss this framework in their book, as a crucial differentiation factors when facing global competition. We also discussed how Chinese history and culture play a role in shaping business in China. We discussed Mao Zedong's legacy from his military and political strategies to personal anecdotes that have had a lasting impact on contemporary Chinese leadership styles. Goldie pointed out that Mao's endurance is somewhat of a double-edged sword, for while it gives these tech leaders an advantage of moving fast in China's hyper-competitive tech market, it also creates stability and transparency issues that oversee markets of value. We also touch upon a reevaluation the authors do of the effects of the Cultural Revolution and how this period of significant turmoil may have actually contributed to later business vibrancy. Guo Li and Zhang Gang talk about the failed IPO attempt of Ant Financial as a case study that illuminates the challenges Chinese tech companies face with the tightening of regulation in China. They also explained the logic behind the underlying regulatory framework and how crackdowns function. Given this environment and COVID restrictions, we also discussed how more Chinese firms, especially VCs, are moving out of China and into a more favorable environment, such as Singapore, where both Guoli and Jiang Gang reside. This episode was recorded before the Chinese 20th Party Congress, and we touch upon possible outcomes in the discussion, some of which are consistent with news coverage following the Congress of reaction among Chinese business elite. 
it does seem that the trends we discuss will only strengthen in coming years. We conclude our discussion with Guoli and Zhang Gong giving valuable suggestions based on years of experience from both academia and industry to Chinese companies wishing to expand into foreign territories in this challenging era. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Guoli and Zhang Gong, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks for having us, Chris. First, maybe Guoli, I'll start with you. Really enjoyed reading the new book, co-authored with Zhang Gong, Seeing the Unseen Behind Chinese Tech Giants Global Venturing. Obviously, tech in China is a hugely important industry, but then also this idea of going global is something that's also a really important aspect of China's economic development story. First question I have is about your title, Seeing the Unseen. Can you just say a little bit about what's the unseen part in your title? Do you know that our book focuses on these Chinese tech companies, Alibaba, TikTok, and then see like how do they emerge in the past, in the last decades, and what are the challenges that facing nowadays in the overseas expansion? So there are several things which we thought it's unseen, or, or maybe it's misinterpreted by many Western or popular media,s such as, for instance, the growth of the Chinese tech companies is simply because of the Chinese government's protection. Which is not true. We think do not overattribute the success or growth of the Chinese tech companies to the Chinese government's protection. Because if you think about it, with a gigantic homogeneous market, which is very unique, which is very different from the U.S. in terms of language, in terms of consumer behavior, together with a group of the high, inspiring and ambitious Chinese entrepreneurs, actually it is pretty natural that China will breed its. Own giants, either in the tech or not tech, and and interestingly, however, the unique ecosystem that China has created over the years, WeChat ecosystem、uh, or the macro environment system that created over the years, actually create a bottleneck for them to further grow in the international market, which means the same recipe works in China may not work in other places. Another misperception or unseen part is many people think that. In China, copyright means copy it right. So they thought the Chinese company perhaps just copy, but actually, what we find is Chinese company do not plan copy tech products or business models.、Uh, the reality is that the simple copying actually is not enough to succeed in China. And on the contrast, actually, Chinese companies go beyond copying. They continuously make innovations to stay competitive. And think about the WeChat. Versus WhatsApp, and they are very different species nowadays. And compare like PayPal versus Alipay, again, very very different. So in the book that we discussed several factors, which is I think unseen or misinterpreted. Can I just add a quick point about number one? I've met lots of founders from China over the last few years, and one thing that many of them were telling me is that they wish that the government had let people like Google and Facebook into the country because that would change the competitive dynamics. I mean, if you look at all the leading tech companies in China. Their margins is slim. Alibaba's tech rate is like four percent, versus in Japan, Rakuten is charging more than ten percent. So they said, okay, the government closed the wall, and people somehow ended up having a super fierce competition within China, and nobody has good margins. 
these correctives of how the West sees Chinese innovation as a super important aspect of your book. I'm amazed just the innovations in fintech and in WeChat, Alibaba. The last time I was in China, which was a couple of years ago, obviously, you could go into convenience stores and pay by your face. They used facial recognition to get in and out of campuses. So you don't have to show your ID. They just recognize you. You know, all these things that are just so much further advanced than the West. So I think this is a really important aspect of your book. One follow-up question I have, when I ask Jiang Gang, it's in regard to what you were saying about the protected nature of the Chinese ecosystem. It's protected, but also this gigantic market of 1.4 billion people. And even though companies like Google and Facebook couldn't get in, if you look at ride sharing, for instance, where Uber actually was able to go in, but still DD destroyed it. And at least my experience at DD is such a better app, has so many other options. So this made me think about one of the really interesting metaphors that you use in the book is this famous crocodiles in the Yangtze, What you point out is actually alligators, not crocodiles versus shark. Can you talk a little bit about this metaphor, alligators versus sharks and how Chinese companies are going to go global? They're going to have to compete with sharks, but yet they're crocodiles in the Yangtze. That quote was uh, made famous by Jack Ma, I think about 20 years ago. And of course, when he could still speak freely. Basically, back then, context is that when Alibaba was building this uh, C2C e-commerce platform, which later became Taobao, and people were skeptical because you have much, much bigger companies like eBay at that time. And of course, Amazon was on the horizon as well. So people are skeptical whether Alibaba would ever make it building a C2C platform. And then he famously said that, okay, eBay is a shark and they are fierce open waters. But when they come to Yangtze in the river ecosystem where we are the crocodile, and of course, Yangtze River, uh, that kind of animal is actually alligators. But we are the crocodiles and we are able to defeat them in our own ecosystem, which later turned out to be the case. And the funny thing is that if you fast forward that by 15 years, you see that Alibaba has become a giant in China and they have been trying to enter other markets. I mean, they have been trying to enter India a few times in Southeast Asia through Lazada and a few other investments. AliExpress has been building sort of e-commerce across the world and they bought a company in Turkey as well. So a lot of things are happening and they are becoming a shark and they are trying to compete against the local crocodiles or alligators. And uh, it turned out like many of the issues the previous generation of sharks faced, they are facing the same issue. You are very successful in your home country, but once you get out, I mean, you face different realities and how do you adapt? What can you say about that adaptation? Is there any rules like, okay, if a company like Ali or WeChat or TikTok might be a really good example, although that is increasingly seen as under regulatory scrutiny. I know Ali has had issues and many financial services companies have had issues because frequently the finance sector is heavily regulated. I know that, for instance, Alipay in the U.S., I'm actually not able to use that, even though in China I can use Alipay because actually it's restricted to only basically Chinese citizens in the U.S. can use Alipay because I guess something they want it for the tourist market. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what sort of recommendations or rules would you have for Chinese tech companies in going global? In a book, we actually use a framework called a people, organization, product, and leadership. And the most important part is leadership. And what we see in TikTok here is that the leadership personally spend a lot of time and spend lots of effort, crucially, a lot of mental space deciding what to do in the international markets. And this is something that we don't see in other companies. In Alibaba's case, most of the decision makers stayed in China most of the time. And even if they spend one or two days per month with Lazada, and it doesn't really help them make the decisions. So really it comes down to when you have become successful and you have a pathway that you have used to become where you are. 
and now you are in a market or a set of markets where, where the realities are very different. The feedback you receive from the market is different. People are telling you different things and you are not in the market full time to judge what's right, what's wrong. And you don't know how much resources to allocate. So all these issues which require the leaders to make decisions and uh, not only the leaders, but people around the supply chain, right? I mean, Alibaba supply chain people in China need to see that and how much logistics space they allocate for Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera. So all these issues become very complicated. And I think it was the same issue that Amazon faced in China. And one of the things I do appreciate about your book is that you talk not just about success cases like a lot of books do, but actually, I mean, there's even more that we can learn from the failure. Gorli, Jiangang mentioned the model that you have for the book, which I think is another big contribution of it, this people organizational product and leadership or POP leadership. Can you describe this model a bit more and maybe also a little bit how you developed it based on these cases? A big background of the this type model is like when we wrote the book on Chinese firms for the practitioners and one challenge that we face actually the things happen and change very fast, especially in the tech sector. So it is a real VUCA environment, which represents a very volatile, very uncertain, very complex, and very ambiguous. When we wrote the book, we thought that we would like to develop a framework which is relatively have universal implications and which is relatively stable, which can help to analyze the past and also provide the guideline for the future. So that is a big background of why we developed this model. So we call it a POP leadership. It's a P-O-P leadership. So you can see that on the surface level, when we do the careful analysis, and then on the surface level, we see that a lot of the products or services issues. But what we cannot see, or maybe unseen, it's like or difficult to see. It's like uh, the ultimately uh, that is the organizations and people, and like Jiang Gan said earlier, ultimately is the leadership, right? Because eventually, the leadership is the one who set the ambition, set the direction for their firms. And part of my own academic research is about the leadership effects. So to understand a firm's strategy, and sometimes we need to study it as a strategist because the leaders provide a very short car for us to have a quick comprehension and even forecast what's the next strategic move. In the book, we talk about like Jack Ma of the Alibaba and Mr. Zhang Yiming of ByteDance. So, so overall, that's, we spent lots of time to build this model to try to give the more detailed illustration of what the pop leadership means. The first P is people. They are the micro-agents of the firm who make things happen. So the core management questions for people is where to hire, how to motivate, how to train, how to evaluate, how to build the core value and turn up with the best lieutenants. And the O represents the organizations. It address the fundamental issues such as decision rights, information communication, resources allocations. And fundamentally, one of the very interesting and very critical perspectives is like how to keep the organizational agility when firms become bigger and bigger. How does the Chinese firm keep this agility by continuous organizational restructuring, rotation of the executives? So this is the part which is related to all organization. And the second P, which is the product, so this is the interface services and products engage with the clients. So this is the part to generate and capture value. 
And so products is related to a series of the strategic decision, including like what to offer, when to enter, where to enter, how to enter, right? So our book have this the framework and have a more detailed illustration of each components and what are the key questions. So we hope this type of leadership frameworks can help us and help the reader to have a very quick look and relatively comprehensive analysis of the challenge when they enter the overseas market. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book. I mean, that it has both academic background and rigor, but also deep practical insights and connection to the real world, which is really, I think, many times very rare. And I just want to give you a compliment, actually, Guoli. I'm doing some teaching, actually, on ESG. And one of the things that the, what the participants wanted to learn about was what the effect of having a chief sustainability officer is. And I looked up and I found you, you have a recent paper on that, which I'm now actually taking into the classroom. Thank you, Chris. That brings up a question. There should be more team-ups like this between academics and practitioners. How did you guys come to write this book? NCA, actually, we offer an MBA elective we call China Strategy. So in this classroom, in addition to have these like case analysis, a very typical MBA education, I try to invite guest speakers from different industries to give a talk, share with our students on their insights and the challenges in the business world, right? And at that point of time, actually, I have one session specific on Chinese company going overseas and they Jiang Gang is our NCS MBA alumni doing some very related work. And so I sent email to Jiang Gang and then he agreed to be part of our panelist in the guest speaker. So we know each other and then a certain point of time, we thought, okay, given this is a critical questions, and we received lots of questions from both academic and practitioners about what this Chinese tech company is like, what they're doing, or what's the mindsets of the leaders. So a certain point of time, we thought, why not we just write a book? So this is, go back to your earlier question, this is a combination or the integration of both academic and practitioner. One of the things I really like about the book is how it really takes Chinese history and culture very seriously in thinking about business strategies. And one of my interests is sort of lasting effects of Mao on China. And you have a, a number of aspects of that. And Zhang Gang, maybe I can start with you. Can you say a little bit about particularly maybe like Mao's military strategies and philosophies and how those are really relevant to business and followed by Chinese business? Maybe let me start with uh, some reflection. So me, I mean, I'm from China, but uh, originally, but I, I came to Southeast Asia in Singapore since I was in high school. So last 10 years, I've been building companies, fortunate enough to be able to sell by tech companies in Southeast Asia. And for a long time, I was jealous about my counterparts in China, right? Because whatever they can build is much bigger. But since 2015 onwards, I've been traveling regularly to Beijing, to Hangzhou, and to, to Shenzhen, where all the major tech companies are based. And I've been talking to lots of founders. I was hoping to get some experience about how to design a product, how do you acquire users. Everyone talks to me about history, talks to me about strategy, and sometimes even mythology. In particular, the wisdoms from Mao came up a lot. I thought initially actually shook me quite a bit, because in my mind, Mao was this revolutionary, ruthless, 
even related to business. But then I started reading some of the books and uh, then I started having discussions with these people. They said, this analogy that these people use, Communist Party in China, is a very uh, successful startup. Starting with uh, about 12 or 21 delegates and overcame much, much more powerful enemies over the course of the history. Uh, lots of tactics used, lots of strategies used, and eventually sort of exited through funding the People's Republic. When people think about, okay, what they can learn from the founders, and they can't really learn from traditional case studies from more traditional companies because those guys are very, very different environment. The FMCG companies took more than 10 years to figure out how to do Japan, but these guys are facing much more compressed timeline. So they went to Mao, all the challenges he faced, etc., etc. And even how he does the product research, the level of detail and lots of tremendous amount of learning about tactics, etc. My favorite Mao idea that relates to business is the surrounding the cities from the countryside. It's actually quite brilliant. In many ways, my understanding is that back in the early days of the CCP fighting the KMT, traditional Orthodox Marxist-Leninist ideas of revolution followed by the Soviet Union is that you want to have the factory workers in the cities are the ones that actually are the leaders of the revolution. But China at the time had lots of peasants, lots of rural people, and so this was even sort of scoffed at by Stalin and other people that his ideas, and this is what actually really was tremendously influential in defeating the KMT. And I hear Pindodo or even Huawei back very early actually used this strategy to say, okay, we'll rely on China's large rural population, maybe third and fourth tier cities. Why compete with Alibaba in the developed areas? There's this huge market region. And I think this also leads back to the point that you have done enough uh, investigation about the market that you are in, right? So Mao's investigation told him that the real dynamics and the real resources we can mobilize are in the countryside. And uh, that's how we can win the revolution. I mean, if we focus on the cities, as the orthodox thinking tells us to, we'll be losing the war. And I think that's a real understanding about power dynamics in the country and how he had his resources. I have a question, actually, still, Jiangang, for you. I realized the name of your company is Momentum. There's this Chinese term, sure. Some people that are in our academic field, Guo Li and I, have talked to me about how there is this idea of momentum. Sure, yeah. Is that the idea that you're focusing on in your company? In a way, yes, actually. We came out with the English name first before the Chinese name for the company. The momentum basically means that we keep moving. We leverage the right resources. The notion you mentioned about Shi, this is actually a very, very big reflection that I personally had over the last 10 years of working in tech. It's a lot of successes happening with the right time with the right people and with the right resources, right? I mean, many of the tech companies in the last 10 years succeeded because they were the first ones to arrive when hundreds of millions of people became part of the internet. So if you're at the right time and whatever you do, the benefits will double. If you're at the wrong time, no matter how hard you work, it's very hard for you to succeed. Guoli, I'm curious as well to ask you about some of these Maoist strategies that we talked about, like surrounding the, the cities from the countryside. Any way you think these might actually be, as you think about globalization, double-edged swords because the companies may be really focused on China's specific market, which then, as we've talked a little bit about, it would make a challenge for them to go global. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's definitely a double-edged sword. And 
across the several dimensions. And one of the points that I mentioned earlier is about the unique ecosystem that China have created over the years. And it become the bottleneck for this Chinese company to grow or expand in the international market. This is mainly from the product level of the discussion. But we think about this like pop leadership, like in addition to the products and then the organizational level actually also create a bit of the double-edged sword because the organization in China, in the tech sector, actually it's very agile, right? This is the way that the Chinese tech firms, that they can cope with this hyper-competitive market. So this is the organizational challenge that they build a structure or restructure to deal with the challenge that they're facing in the domestic market. But however, if they go overseas, we observe actually this overseas market, especially if you think about the subsidiaries, actually they need some level of the stability or maybe commitments a relatively clear reporting line. So you can see in China, if in the headquarter, uh, there's so many organizational restructuring and change on the one hand, it's good. This is the way to deal with the hyper-competitive environment. However, if you are the country managers, you are those in the subsidiaries, then if you see the organization do the similar things in the overseas market, then the signal to the external stakeholders or internal employees, actually, it will be interpreted differently. So this is again related to the other dimension, people dimension. So. Chinese internet firms have its own pretty unique culture, which could be appreciated by employees in China. But if you use the same ways to motivate people in overseas, perhaps it's not going to work. So fundamentally, if we think about the challenge of these Chinese tech firms facing when you go overseas, I think China, a big, gigantic domestic market, could be both a blessing and also a curse. The uniqueness of the market is certainly one aspect that I think a lot about and find very interesting. And John Gong, I want to ask you also again about another aspect of Mao and how the market is very unique. One of the arguments that I found really interesting that I had not heard before, some of the military stuff, I've talked to entrepreneurs and, and heard some of these ideas, but that actually the cultural evolution itself also has played a role in the development of the market in positive ways, which is interesting always to think about things that maybe are frequently seen as negative. There we have bias, actually. Everything gets lumped as negative. For instance, in my looking at Miles' work, we actually look at how the Great Leap Forward, while obviously had hugely disastrous effects in a number of ways, actually has a number of positive aspects around frugality and actually creativity. But this is the first time I'd actually heard about the cultural evolution in the way that you guys talk about it. Can you say a little bit about it? I always thought that cultural evolution was a disaster. I still think it's a disaster. But practically speaking, there have been some positive aspects. And I feel that in particularly, especially in the past few years that I've been building businesses outside China, and I've been evaluating sort of tech investment opportunities in many countries. And in many countries, you just see the huge resistance in terms of the sort of traditional interest groups, in terms of the resistance to building infrastructure, etc., etc. Even in some of the ethnic Chinese communities that we see in Southeast Asia, it's very hard to build new businesses because all the business interests have been taken care of by large traditional groups. And whereas you look at in China, after the Cultural Revolution, when the reform and opening up happened in the 1980s and 1990s, it was a clean slate. It was basically lots of lots of old interest groups destroyed. 
but you left with people who really, really hungry for success. That hunger plus the lack of uh, resistance for, from an infrastructure point of view, from a traditional interest group point of view, really made lots of things happen and uh, really, really made the single market happen. Now I look at Indonesia, I look at India, I look at many markets where things are large and population is large. But if you look into details, these are not single markets. You have to deal with lots of lots of local groups to make things happen. It'd be interesting to talk a little bit as well about the current regulatory environment. Been a number of crackdowns on tech companies in the last couple of years, educationally focused companies, famous ones, you know, Ant, IPO, DD, IPO, going public. So Guoli, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, particularly Ant Group's IPO. What's your read of the tightening of the domestic situation for tech companies? I think they are both more specific implications or specific reason versus more broader implications. For in financials case, I think the failed attempt of the IPO back to October 2020, I think this is a mix of business considerations and IPO valuations and national financial security system, or even a balance between tech slash innovation versus regulation slash control for financial itself from the business perspective the company have now evolved into a virtual financial services more for everything from consumer loan to micro sme loan to mutual funds insurance policies and travel bookings right this is again it's a very typical phenomenon that we observe in China, which is we call the super apps. So that is from the business side. But the questions that it bring to the governments from this like national level on China is like how to regulate and how to evaluate. So is it a pure tech company or it's a financial company? And if it is under tech and then if it is under financial company, actually they are facing different uh, regulations. So. I think the concern from the country is if the consumer loan or the micro loan was not monitored, not well regulated, and then what are the potential problems? In my recent of the issues about the financial crisis, right? So if you use that specific case of the end financial, actually there are more considerations. It's perhaps it's not only tech itself. It's actually it's also get into the finance and regulation and control how to reduce the risk. John Gong, I'm curious your thoughts as well on this. Ants a specific case, obviously DD's a specific case. There's a lot of crackdown in the gaming industry, uh, ed tech. So what's your assessment of these crackdowns? First, crackdowns have been happening even before the latest wave since last year. In 2019, there was a crackdown on fintech P2P lending. And even before that, there was a crackdown on ICOs back in 2018. So, so this actually leads back to what we talked at the beginning of this part. When things start developing in China, it suddenly becomes very competitive. I am in Southeast Asia. If a new business sector, new tech sector has four major players, it's already competitive. But in China, sometimes you're talking about hundreds of players trying to seize the same opportunity. From a regulator's point of view, as Gordy rightly pointed out, it's very hard to balance in the beginning. So if you come down too hard too early, you sort of stifle innovation. But Realistically, I mean, it's very hard for you to come out with a realistic regulatory framework. So, so typically what you see with many regulators is that they'll wait and see, they will study, and if the things become out of control, 
the ban it outright. So, so there, there have been lots of discussions. Why can't the government like, study that in a little bit more detail? But in many cases, we see that, okay, systemic risks already being created and uh, lots of lots of retail investors or retail consumers get impacted. So sometimes that probably don't have the time to, to do a more detailed study before they take a drastic action. I want to follow up with you, actually. I actually hear both of your discussions, but start with you, Jiangan. In some of these crackdowns are an issue also the COVID policy in China is, at least in the Western press, seem that there's some resistance. And I hear that more and more entrepreneurs and VCs are actually setting up shop in Singapore. Both of you are in Singapore. Is that something that you've been seeing? Will this trend possibly reverse maybe after the 20th Party Congress if COVID restrictions relax a little bit? We're recording that at the beginning of October, and the past two weeks have been crazy. Like every day, I was meeting three to four parties coming from China. And um, in the past, when major VCs, when major tech companies come to this region, they will send someone to, to investigate whether it's worth for them to make some investments or expand the business. What happened in the last two weeks is that you see the bosses of companies. You see the founding and managing partners of VCs, etc., etc. So it sort of forced people to seriously look at what other opportunities outside. And the question of uh, whether this will change something fundamentally or whether these people will come back. I think at the end of the day, it depends on the individuals, how comfortable they are with the opportunities, how they assess the, the opportunities. My sense is that uh, if after the party congress and uh, COVID restrictions will be eased, and if there's a big economic stimulus, I think many people will still go back to China. But if like, I don't know, 5% out of these thousands of people who came out managed to stay, I think that will still cause some interesting dynamics in the ecosystem. I think there are two major factors which might influence the trends are going to continue and whether Singapore could continues to be an attractive place for this like Chinese overseas expansion or the first stop. The first factor is how many Chinese firms and bosses are determined to go overseas expansion. And this question actually is influenced by, I think, two factors. One, of course, is the comparatively, like what's the business opportunities within China versus the opportunities outside China. What we see in the last two or three years, think about this like Chinese tech giants. And then if we take a look of the proportion of the revenue, many of them actually are still very China-centric company, including like Tencent or like Alibaba. So which means like in the past, globalization or overseas expansion is perhaps just a dessert or maybe appetizer for the overall business group, right? And China is still a big, gigantic market. Nowadays, I think with this policy change and then maybe some economic situation shift, and it is possible that at least I think the possibility is increasing that overseas expansion could be the main dishes for some companies or some bosses or leaders. So this is from the comparative view about the economic situation with China and outside China. And definitely we see there's some shift. And of course, for many of them, because they grew up in China, they made the success in China, they still feel more familiar with the Chinese business environment. But once the situation got better, perhaps many of them will still decided to go back. I like your metaphor about appetizers and desserts and main dishes. Is, that leads me into actually our final question I have for both of you. Chinese companies wanting to go global, two to three headline recommendations to them based either on your book or, or your other work. What would you give them? Maybe Guoli, let's start with you. First, it's perhaps be humble, especially if you have prior success in China. 
And sometimes people will become more and more overconfident and many mistakes that uh, in those earlier days that the U.S. company being arrogant, the mistakes that they made in China that please try not to like repeat the same mistakes when they go overseas. And related to the second one, maybe is be sensitive or attentive, right? So go back to our earlier discussion about Mao's strategy, right? So you need to have a deep understanding of the local market. You need to do this, like the deep level of the investigation before you make the decision. And maybe the third one is think clearly, what's the purpose for go overseas? Is it like the business or slash market driven or it's pushed by your investor? Or maybe some of them could be personal ego driven. And if in that case, maybe you have to have a second thought whether you would like to go overseas or not. Jiangan, how about you? Two specific pieces of advice. First, dedicate enough mental space to a new market. So mental space means that you need to have the time to think and have the time to reflect, have the time to, to make decisions. That's from leadership point of view. And a second, leadership and uh, your top lieutenants you really need to learn English. So this is actually crucially important because I've seen many cases where the leaders are in a market, but they just don't speak English. And of course, the truth is that in most foreign markets, we see in Southeast Asia as well, that the elites of each country, they are usually Western educated, they speak good English. So if you can't connect with the elites of the country, it's very difficult for you to mobilize the resources. We're unfortunately out of time. I would love to continue talking about this topic, which is, I think, a shared interest between all of us. But just want to thank both of you, Guo Li and Jiang Gong, uh, for joining us today on China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. 